live and pre-recorded. This is the Red Ticket Blues Podcast. I am Ryan Buckley. This is hitting the internets on July 21st, 2016. How the hell is everybody doing? Uh, you want to listen to the show and don't miss any episodes? Well, you're going to go to iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and Google Play. Subscribe. And just in case you didn't do that, you can follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 and at RedTicketBlues. So it is another weekly edition of Thursday Talk. We have a guest, Mr. Jay Jaffe. He is a baseball writer for Sports Illustrated, heavily into the Sabre metrics, into Hall of Fame discussion, who's worthy, who's not. And uh, we'll get into a little, uh, some other things, some trade rumors, some trade happenings, and uh, the the world of craft beer, which Jay is uh, heavily um, heavily a fan of, I should, I should say. But before we get to Jay Jaffe, I want to just remind you of the sponsor of the Red Ticket Blues podcast, and that is SeatSwapTickets.com. SeatSwapTickets.com. Twice. Did you hear it? Well, what SeatSwapTickets does, let's, let's say you got great plans. You're going to sit front row at the Knicks game. You're going to see some concert, Paul Simon, Bruce Springsteen, somebody, somebody you want to see, and then you know what? Life happens. Uh-oh, can't go. No, you, there's no alternative, right? Well, I mean, you can go to those other sites where you can, you know, 30, 30% of what you paid for chopped right off and you, and you lose money, or you can go to SeatSwapTickets.com. Why are they different? Well, I'm going to tell you. Just calm down. Relax. So what's going to happen is you're going to interact with real fans. They're not going to be some page where you're where you're clicking refresh over and over again, thinking, "Oh man, am I being charged?" Uh, you know, three times here. This shady site that pops up with the countless millions of them on the internet with just tickets. Seat swap tickets is different. Why? They have a profile. They have they 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 show you that pl- people are team friendly. They they're they're fans of teams is what I'm trying to say. They they're just like you. They root for teams. They they want to help other people. It's a community. All right, it's a community. Because Seat Swap Tickets was founded by a couple of crazy guys who happen to be proud members of Mongo Nation, all right? Uh, They're offering Red Ticket Blues listeners exclusive access to their private beta before they roll it out to the public. I mean, they want to meet with you. They want to talk with you. They want you to understand how it works. So what you're going to do, you're going to contact them. Yes, by email. Yes, email. It's on computers now. You can contact Dan at the email address of dan at seatswaptickets.com or Josh with the email address of josh at seatswaptickets.com. Remember, the only place on the internet, the entire internet all over the world, cyberspace, for where you can safely swap tickets with other fans, it's seatswaptickets.com. And if you didn't hear me the several times I said this here, it's seatswaptickets.com. He is the founder of the Futility Infielder, and he is a baseball writer for Sports Illustrated. Mr. Jay Jaffe, thanks for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. All right, so let's jump into this, Jay. Let's go full bore, as they say, or some say. Uh, the Yankees are one game over 500. That's usually one of their three spots, below, at, or above. And uh, they're still playing tricks on the fan base. They got a three-game winning streak going as we speak here on Wednesday night. Please tell me and the rest of the Yankee fans, this team isn't good, right? R- remind us. And they need to sell, right? Yeah, this is not a good team. I mean, this, they're, they've been outscored by 30 runs uh, overall. Um, they've got, uh, at best, one and a half good starting pitchers. Uh, Masahiro Tanaka has generally been pretty good when he's gotten that, that extra day of rest. CeCe Sabathia has had a nice little bounce-back season, but, you know, it's really tough to string together the five-game winning streak that they need or the, or the, or the 10 out of 12 that they need or something like that uh, when you've got the quality of starting pitching that they have. Uh, I know it's, it's something that they haven't done in a good long time, but they really do need to be sellers. They really do need to... 
uh, unload as much money as they can, add some prospects and some youth to the system. Um, you know, they've done a good job of, of, of getting a little bit younger here and there, but uh, there's just so much dead money and there's so you know, there's, the rotation is so thin. Uh, it's time to make some changes there. Yeah, so, I mean, what I had uh, originally written here to talk to you about was they've been rumored to be in trade talks with the Chicago Cubs. And right before we started recording here, there is a reported trade that the Cubs will send uh, they'll send Dan Volgaback to the Mariners from Mike Montgomery. Does this affect any Aroldis Chapman moving or any potential deal with the Chicago Cubs and New York Yankees? I think it's possible. I mean, I know that the Cubs don't want to part with the kind of blue chippers that the Yankees were looking for when it came to Chapman. Uh, we saw that they did a very good job last year of shoring up their bullpen in the second half by taking some chances with some low-cost guys, waiver-wire types and, and reclamation projects, Trevor Cahill, uh, Fernando Rodney, and uh, Clayton Richard. They got good mileage out of those guys. Um, you know, Montgomery, uh, who is is a former top prospect who's bounced around a couple times now, you, uh, came up with the Royals, uh, had a little bit of success with the Rays, a little bit of success with Seattle. Uh, I guess they've moved him to the bullpen, and he's had some. He's had even more success. This is a quality arm. Uh, I, I think he could he could be a significant piece for them down the stretch. The other team I wanted to ask you about is the Los Angeles Dodgers. There's also news today. Uh, Dave Roberts, the manager, saying that you know. Clayton Kershaw, we don't know when he's coming back. We don't know if he's coming back at all. So what are the Dodgers looking at as a trade, trade deadline is now just under two weeks away? Yeah, they're, you know, they've played good ball since he, since he went on the disabled list. I think they're 12-6, and six and they've cut, the, they've, they've cut about two and a half games off the lead on the Giants. But uh, really, this is just not the same team without him. They're like 500 at best when, when uh, uh, in games that he's not starting. Uh, they've lost Alex Wood for the year. Hyunjin Ryu worked so hard to get back, made just one start before going back on the DL. Uh, they've gotten some good work out of Brandon McCarthy and Bud Norris uh, since they joined the team. But, uh, uh, you know, just there's so many holes right now in, in that pitching staff and innings concerns for some of the rookies, uh, Julio Urias and Ross Stripling, who gave them some solid work when other guys were hurt. I just don't know that there's a magical bullet solution for them right now. Um, except to score eight runs a night and, and hope that the pitch, hope that the pitching can stand behind that. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they get, you know, if they get another Bud Norris type and, and uh, uh, maybe a bat uh, for the outfield to try to shore that up here uh, in the absence of, of any real solution or any real clarity on, on, on when uh, Kershaw is coming back. You see Puig going anywhere or is he not going to be part of any deals? I you know I think they would be foolish to trade Yasiel Puig. Yeah, I agree. He's he's been he's been much better since coming back from the disabled list with that hamstring injury. He's done all the things they asked him to do in terms of his attitude and his his uh, uh, tardiness problems. He is an outstanding defender who's put up highlight reel plays uh, uh, a lot of you know a lot of them this year. Um, I think they just got to wait it out. The bat's going to come around. I, this is the guy who's only cost them fourteen million dollars over the next two years. Um, I don't think you're going to get anybody back who's going to give you uh, what Yasiel Puig, a fully operational Yasiel Puig, can give them. I agree. Good contract and a lot of good years ahead of him. They'd be silly to trade him. Uh, what I wanted to jump into was you. there's an unlikely way that you've gone to Sports Illustrated. And what I mean by that is I think most people, the sports writer, you know, interns at some – 
uh, nostalgic institution and befriends the grizzled sports writer that no one can get along with. And, you know, it's a nice fluffy story, but yours is a little different. Tell us a little bit about how you became a baseball writer for Sports Illustrated. Well, you know, it started, I was actually a moonlighting graphic designer who wanted to learn how to do web design because uh, most of my specialty was in print. This was back around uh, the turn of the millennium. Uh, I started a blog called Futility Infielder in 2001. Um, I uh, did a lot of uh, advanced stats stuff that brought, my, brought me to the attention of baseball prospectus. Uh, while I was at BP, I, I got into the habit of, uh, uh, I guess, writing, r- writing for a larger audience uh, about more teams than just the Dodgers and the Yankees, the two teams that I was following most closely. I grew up a Dodger fan. Uh, third generation. My grandfather was actually born in Brooklyn, but was on the West Coast by the time the team moved. So never bore them the same ill will that I think a lot of Brooklynites do. Uh, I live in Brooklyn now, actually. I've been in New York City for 21 years. Uh, My friends uh, and I have had a ticket package since 1998 to the Yankees games. Uh, So I was following the Dodgers and the Yankees closely, but I've expanded that or expanded that to follow a national audience. And, uh, um, you know, at at some point, I think it was the Hall of Fame work I was doing and some other stuff that I was doing uh, drew me to the attention of, of, of uh, Sports Illustrated that they, they needed a daily blogger uh, for a new blog that they were starting up called called Hit and Run. Um, and uh, a friend of mine who's actually now my colleague, uh, Cliff Corcoran, was, recommended me for it. Um, and uh, this happened, I guess, in, in early 2012, mid-2012, May of 2012, I guess it was. Um, and I've been there ever since, and uh, I've, uh, it's a great platform. Uh, it's cool to be doing uh, stuff at Sports Illustrated because of uh, uh, the, the history behind it. I love digging into the archives, the magazine archives, to find something that connects to something that I'm writing about. Um, certainly going through some changes there. Uh, they've, they've, they've had a, 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 a rocky time adapting to the, to the digital age, uh, I think, in, in, in some respects. But uh, um, you know we do we have we have a good amount of fun there and it's a, it's got a great reach the platform does and uh, uh, it's cool to be part of uh, the, the Sports Illustrated uh, legacy. Yeah, I think a lot of media is maybe falling on tough times or having you know mixed success with the digital age. But you're somebody obviously that you can see that knowledge and stats are a powerful tool. And I just quickly wanted to ask you about this: the Cardinals scouting director Chris Correa. <laughs> Uh, was sentenced to 46 months in prison um, for the hacking scandal, obviously. Uh, 46 months, it seems harsh, but that's the, the letter of the law. Uh, what do you think Rob Manfred and the powers of be in the front office of baseball do to the St. Louis Cardinals? I think there will be some kind of remedy in the form of... Uh, I, think, well, I think the Cardinals are going to get fined, first of all. I think it'll be a hefty you know, multi-million dollar fine. Uh, and I think there will be some form of restitution in the form of draft picks and uh, uh, pool money uh, that transferred from the Cardinals to the Astros. Uh, no idea how much it's going to be or what the timetable of that's going to be, but I would suspect it's going to be, uh, you know, a, a a pricey thing like a first round draft pick or maybe a couple first round draft picks or something. That's going to be interesting uh, because you know, I mean, we've never seen it in in baseball or really any sports hacking. But when it comes to suspension, I mean, we've seen the with the Patriots will take away a first round pick and a first round pick in the NFL is probably worth a lot more than it is in baseball. So it will be interesting to see exactly how they'll how they'll do that. Yeah, it, it is, and we're in uncharted territory. I mean, there—you know—that's not the first place that, that Rob Manford has had to delve into uncharted territory. But 
I think it was inevitability with you know with uh, so many teams uh, you know building these proprietary systems that that somebody sooner or later was going to breach one, uh, and that we're, the, the game was going to have uh, this type of scandal on, on its hands. I you know it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. It certainly uh, is something that tarnishes the Cardinals' uh, reputation for being a model organization. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you know the one thing that I, I really have to ask myself here is, is or you know, I know is going around the game is how is it that nobody else in the Cardinals organization knew about this? I think it <laughs> seems rather implausible given we're talking about somebody who hacked in not once, not twice, more than sixty times. Yeah, exactly. Um, had to be talking about talking uh, about this to uh, at least somebody else in the organization. So um, I wonder if there are going to be additional heads that are going to roll. You would think so, because that's a great point. Uh, you know, no one can really keep a secret, especially when it's that big and it's on uh, electronic paperwork there. Uh, <laughs> right. So, now, now, again, we're talking stats and how powerful they are. You've created a methodology called JAWS, the Jaffe War Score System, and you use that to evaluate Hall of Fame worthiness. So, briefly, explain what JAWS is. Okay. Uh, what it is, it's an attempt to... Uh, at, at least maintain, if not improve, the quality of uh, Hall of Fame inductees by comparing candidates to those who are already enshrined at their position. Uh, so we're comparing catchers to catchers, first baseman to first baseman, left fielders to left fielders. Um, you know, and it's using wins above replacement uh, so we can measure, you know, or at least estimate the value of a player's offense and defense. Uh, over the course of the wide variance in baseball history when it comes to scoring levels and ballpark effects and things like that. Um, I started doing this in 2003 uh, late for the 2004 ballot back when I was with Baseball Prospectus. Uh, at that point, uh, BP's wins above replacement player system was the cutting edge. Uh, I've since moved on to the baseball reference version of war. Uh, and in fact, my uh, the, the JAWS system is available on every player card there. You can see on, say, uh, uh, Albert Pujols' card that he's got, uh, uh, you know, how he st stacks up there. And what I do is I measure each player, not, in, uh, not just in terms of career wins above replacement, but also his peak score, which I define as a player's best seven years. Uh, there are players in the Hall of Fame who are there because they burned brightly but quickly, uh, guys like Sandy Koufax and, and Hank Greenberg and Ralph Kiner. Uh, and it's easier to understand uh, who's in the Hall of Fame and why when you look at it from those two points of view uh, rather than just uh, career accumulators. So what I do is I take the average of those two scores. Uh, that's the JAWS. Uh, and that is, uh, I, 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 I tally the average, or the, well, actually it's now the computer that does it for me uh, at, at Baseball Reference. Uh, and I compare each candidate, and those who are above the average of the position or, or in the vicinity of it are guys I think you know are good candidates for election. Now, Jaws doesn't account for postseason play or historical milestones or awards, all of which are worth talking about when you're talking about a Hall of Fame player's case. Um, this isn't designed to just be a binary yes or no. It's a tool, uh, and like any tool, uh, its value is is in how the user uses it. And I'm gratified that there are. Uh, Hall of Fame voters who take my system into consideration, some big-name people that uh, uh, are, have helped me uh, uh, widen the system's reach. Uh, I'm currently working on a book, uh, final stages of, of uh, the first uh, draft of the manuscript here. The book will be out a year from now. It's called The Cooperstown Casebook on Thomas Dunn uh, Publishers. Um, and uh, it's been a lot of fun to work on. It's killing me to finish it, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's got to get done here soon. So... 
Um, you know, and I'm looking I'm looking forward to the day when I can hold a hard copy in my hand. That's that's I mean, that's great and a lot of hard work goes into that. But how awesome is that? The fact that your system, this system that you decided to say, hey, you know, I'm going to create this system. This is available to every player on baseball reference. And, and now you have voters in the Hall of Fame actually using it. I mean, when did you see when did you hear or see that that voters are actually saying, you know, I use the Jaws system when I evaluate a player? You know, it was it was a few years ago when the first of them started speaking up. I mean, it was available baseball prospectus, and there are a lot of uh, industry types who read baseball prospectus. So, uh, you know, I think it had some level of awareness. Uh, you know, and, and uh, it was it was a piece of a piece of uh, uh, information in the favor of somebody like Bruce uh, Burp Blylevin when when he was uh, uh, all the talk of the sabermetric community as a Hall of Fame candidate. Um, you know, but I think it was really the move to to Baseball Reference that, that that furthered it. I mean, it's a site that you know people hit millions of times a month. Uh, everybody in the industry is using it. Uh, you know, and and uh, being at Sports Illustrated and having that platform and getting to getting to put the system on uh, MLB Network as well. Uh, you know, doing doing spots uh, debating uh, Hall of Fame uh, merits with uh, Brian Kenny, the host, and and guys like uh, Ken Rosenthal and John Heyman and Joel Sherman, uh, you know, frontline reporters, uh, you know, who who I think uh, uh, they they spend a lot of time thinking about their ballots and and they love to argue this stuff and uh, you know some of them have actually taken it seriously. Not everybody does, but. You know, you're, all it takes is a, is, a, is a few of them to, you know, few of the influential people in the industry to start talking about it, and others will at least take a look at it. I don't expect everybody to uh, be enslaved by it. I don't want that. Uh, but I do like that uh, it's it's got a place in the conversation. I mean, that's something, I mean, again, I, you, I mean, you are proud of. I don't have to tell you to be proud of it. But, I mean, that, that mm. that's a really great accomplishment. And you're going to be a voter in a few years, and obviously the effort you put in to – who should be in the Hall of Fame is slightly more complex than the Mike and the Mad Dog version of reading the stats and saying yes or no. Um, so how much does it annoy you when you see some voters solely relying on archaic stats, you know, making it well known, that's what they use, or just using it as a platform for, you know, that look at me moment of being a contrarian? Well, I definitely don't like the latter. I mean, I, you know, the the look at me moment. I mean, anybody who thinks that, that what that their Hall of Fame vote has is is anything near the proportion of what these guys did, uh, even the guys who you know were were not saying yes to. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of years arguing against the candidacy of Jack Morris, but what Jack Morris has done is still hugely more, more important than what I did. Uh, brought people a lot more joy. Um, but uh, no, you know it, it, it bothers me. But you you just build up a tolerance to it. I mean, it's it, it, you know it annoys me when somebody's tell you know spends their, spends their oxygen talking about um, you know players RBIs or his win totals as being validating for for the Hall of Fame cases. But you know I I let at this point there are a lot of there are a lot of voices out there who will who will. Uh, um, do the complaining about that. I think I, I get to I get to focus on uh, uh, making the cases for the guys that I think are worthy, and and uh, there's there's certainly a lot of them. Uh, the voters have been uh, slow to recognize not just uh, candidates who are currently on the ballot, but uh, uh, you look back, representation levels are are out of whack going back all the way to the early 1970s. Uh, there are a lot of guys missing from the Hall of Fame who should be there, and and uh, uh, if I can help uh, bring. You know, bring some of those to light as well as talking about current candidates. Then, uh, uh, you know, in hopes that those guys get in via the Veterans Committee uh, processes, then uh, 
you know, that's better than complaining about uh, somebody using pitcher wins to evaluate a pitcher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, baseball is a little slow to adapt to everything in baseball is virtually uh, slow to adapt to things. Uh, I, I got to ask you here. Sports writers um, voting in the Hall of Fame. I mean, a lot of people complain there's got to be a better system, not even with just the stats, but like with the aforementioned sort of, you know, look at me sort of thing. Is there a perfect system? Should more people be included in the Hall of Fame vote? Should people be excluded? Or is there just no no one's going to be happy? I don't think you're ever going to make anybody happy, but I would like to see, you know, I don't think the writers have an exclusive province on this. Back in the day when the Hall of Fame uh, created uh, you know, the voting system in 1936, the writers were the only ones who saw every game. Um, you know, they were, they were the, they, and there was no television then. Uh, you had the radio guys, but uh, they were, that was still a developing medium. Um, you know, now I think it would be wise to include broadcasters. I know that they're team employees. I know that there's bias involved, but I think if you, if you at least include the cream of the crop, maybe the guys who've won the, 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 the Ford Frick Award, which is the Hall of Fame's award recognized for the outstanding broadcasters, um, you know, or have and have some kind of qualification level, uh, you know, similar ser- service time to what the writers have, you know, which is ten full years of, of uh, uh, continuous employment for your for your current outlet. Um, you know, I can see letting letting those people have a voice in the, in the process. I can see uh, letting historians like John Thorne and Bill James and and uh, uh, a small handful of others uh, have their voice too. They're not part of the, the Baseball Writers Association of America, which is where the voters come from. But uh, these guys know their stuff. I think it would be it'd be great to include uh, some of these knowledgeable people in the process, and and uh, uh, might change the outcomes a bit. I got to ask you here, last last question on the Hall of Fame. Outside of, outside of Tim Raines, who's on the Jaws system, who is the one player that's getting shafted the most and belongs in the Hall of Fame at this moment? Oh, just one, huh? Um, <laughs> Who has geez. the largest case, I guess I should say. I mean, you know, to me, one one that really stands out from a from a from a historical standpoint is Minnie Minoso, who uh, has been described by uh, Hall Wright. of Famers like like uh, Orlando Cepeda as uh, uh, the Latin Jackie Robinson. Um, this is a you know, he, Minoso uh, was blocked by the color line for for. Early in his career, uh, but had a great like 13-year run in the major leagues, mostly with the White Sox. Uh, has kind of slipped through the cracks. Couldn't get recognized when the Negro Leagues did their uh, did their uh, uh, big sweeping uh, panel uh, back in 2006. He's just sort of caught between. Nobody's ever really taken the measure, the full measure of him. Uh, you know, in terms of the Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball. And, you know, I think some of his late career stuff, like the uh, cameo appearances in his 50s and 60s for the White Sox, have kind of overshadowed just the fact that he was one of the very best ball players in the American League in the 1950s and, and early 60s. And unfortunately just passed away, so if he were to get in, it will be posthumously. So um, we're talking baseball adapting and evolving. Let's talk about – well, I was going to say let's talk about myself, but okay – I've evolved to a certain extent where I love craft beer now. We're going in a completely different direction here. But when I go to a baseball game, for whatever reason, I cannot stomach having a craft beer. There's something, I don't know, it's just the the, the lukewarm, Bud Light, Tall Boy, peanut, butter, peanut mixture. I don't know, that's what does it for me. Do I need to evolve or, or does the great Jay Jaffe stick to classics at a baseball game as well? 
Well, you know, I guess it depends what ballpark you go to. I don't. Yeah, I, I think uh, um, I am definitely a, a craft beer snob. Uh, I don't like have, being limited to just you know Bud Light. I certainly, I, you know, I, I I would have to be drowning or, or <laughs> dying of thirst to, to drink to drink a Bud Light. Um, so you are a snob, okay? Yeah, I am a snob. I mean, I you know, it's I mean, and not it's not just because the the lack of taste in those beers. It's the it's the quality of the marketing. Um, Budweiser's particularly hostile to craft beer. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, I, you know, I think that having bounced around a number of ballparks, uh, I think that um, that uh, Yankee Stadium, where I where I go to most of my games as as, uh, as a fan, at least, and I, I, you know, I'm I'm a BBWA member, so I go to go in the press boxes as well, um, you know, where I'm where I can't drink, but uh, uh, as a fan, uh, Yankee Stadium, I think, has an abysmal quality of beer they've, they've they've improved it this year but just not very many uh craft options there i don't think you need a you need a necessarily like the heavy the heaviest hoppiest ipa uh as your company for a ball game i think a good pilsner for example is right. is uh uh is a is a suitable accompaniment i just want something that's got a little bit more flavor and wasn't uh wasn't made by you know opening a fire hydrant worth of worth of extra water to to to, to water the taste down so um, you know, City Field, I think, does it right. There's a, they've got a craft beer station there, a uh, handful of, uh, I think there's maybe like 15 or 20 local brands in bottles. Um, and uh, uh, I really like going to games there uh, for that reason. There's, uh, uh, there's some good beer there. Uh, I'm a Yankee fan, and I can tell you that there are a plethora of things that are abysmal at that stadium. And I'm not really sure where craft beer stands on it, but <laughs> it's up there. Uh, it's definitely yeah. It's it's you know Yankee Stadium has has really increasingly frustrated me over the last several years. Um, you know just when you see how good some of these other modern ballparks are, uh, its shortcomings I just stand out like a sore thumb. I, I got to ask my next question here. Out of all the stadiums you've gone to since the craft beer uh, explosion has really taken off, what stadium sticks out the best uh, with you with when it comes to selections of beers? Well, you know, it's it's taken me a long time to make the rounds, but I mean, you know, Seattle Safeco Field was great. City Field is great. Um, Nationals Park, I think, uh, was was definitely an up an up and comer there. Uh, Target Field, I wasn't wild about the beer quality, but man, what a ballpark there. Um, you know, I think uh, I think City Field honestly does it about as good as just about anybody. Oh, AT and T Park though, they're miles ahead of everybody else. I mean, because Great. the craft beer movement there is just so is just so far ahead of the rest of the game. But uh, so I'll give them for my West Coast choice and 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 put City Field for the East Coast choice. AT and T Park and City Field, all right. And you are a self proclaimed dark beer connoisseur. It's in your Twitter profile. Um, in the dog days of summer like this, it's not terrible today, but later this week it is going to be in the 90s. Can you drink a dark beer without feeling I don't know, like bloated or like crap, or do you have to break down the the dark beer uh, oh, kind? Oh, like you know, I I love my IPAs and 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 stuff like that too. But you know, there's there's a style of beer that, that kind of come uh, come to a little bit of popularity here in the last few years. And that's the dark IPAs, the black IPAs or, or, or Cascadian IPAs. And there's one I like a lot, uh, called, uh, back in black from 21st amendment, uh, out of San Francisco. It comes in cans. Um, you know, it's lighter than a stout or a porter. Uh, it's, uh, you know, pretty moderate as far as alcohol content goes about 6%, maybe a little bit higher than that. Um, you know, and, and, uh, 
I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna say it suggest that that's the only thing that you should be drinking. But you know, if you want a little bit of that roasty character uh, when it's uh, uh, when the thermometer is higher up, you know, it's it's a good option there. Um, most of my stout and and uh, porter drinking though. Uh, is generally confined to the cooler months, but once in a while, I like to have that uh, that little extra uh, sweet taste. And there is nothing wrong with that, Mister Jaffe. I want to thank you for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. But before you go, I have three quick questions for you to play us out. You ready? Okay. All right. So, using the Jaws method, forget steroids, forget everything. Who is the mm-hmm. greatest position player and greatest pitcher ever? You know, I think. Uh, uh, Pitching-wise, uh, I'm going to have to go with Walter Johnson. Uh, the strikeout rate was, yep, strikeout rate was just so far ahead of his time. Velocity-wise, was just so far ahead of his time. Um, I think maybe Randy Johnson has a case to be ahead of him if you're talking about just how superior you know modern athletes are to to what was going on back then. Likewise, I would say the same uh, about Babe Ruth and, and Barry Bonds. I mean, you know, Babe Ruth, uh, number one personality in the history of the game. Uh, popularized baseball, maybe, maybe even saved it with, uh, uh, you know, the post the post black, black Sox scandal, home run hitting, also a great pitcher in his day before converting. Uh, and Barry Bonds, I mean, the greatest power-speed combo we've ever seen. And uh, uh, it's unfortunate that, uh, uh, that he's remembered right now more for his transgressions and, and, and his hostility uh, towards, towards the media uh, than, you know, for the great things that he did on the baseball field. But I think in time... Uh, maybe we'll get a we'll, we'll get a chance to reappreciate that. I, I think you're right. I think I think healing it, it's involved. I, I think you're right. Uh, number two, you did some musical interest writing long time ago. What's the one album you can't live without? Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. Just oh. one that, that that I keep coming back to. You know, I've I've known that album uh, inside and out for for more than thirty years. That's a two disc album, I believe. Correct. Uh, I think they, I mean, it was a double album. Yes. They fit it on one, on one CD though. Okay. And number three, what is the best overall brewery in the United States? Ooh, 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 ooh. Jeez. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I, that's a good, that's a good question. I think if I had, if, if all things considered, the one that I keep coming back to, um, you know, in terms of, uh, their their ability to get to to break some ground and to get really out there and, and importance to the craft movement. I think Stone, out of San Francisco, I mean uh, out of San Diego, is is really a, a high a high quality one. Oh, and I should also mention Petco Park as as being a great place for craft beer. Oh, I, I can mean, imagine with, uh, yeah. with with it, Stone it, and uh, with Ballast yeah. Point there as well too. Yeah, I mean, you you look at the beer board there and it's like forty eight craft beer options and you're thinking, oh, I got Goose Island. Uh, IPA back in Yankee Stadium. I'm really thrilled to go home from this vacation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Stone and Dallas pointed at, at Petco Park. I mean, you can't go wrong. I'll, 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 you know, I mean, it's it's tough to narrow down to just one. I'm, you know, could think it's of, not uh, fair. Yeah, it's really not fair. But uh, I'll stick with Stone. He writes for baseball at Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at j underscore jaffe. J jaffe. Thanks for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. All right, sure thing, Brian. Thanks a lot. So there he is, Jay Jaffe, Sports Illustrated, bringing a little statistical analysis from the Saber Metrics community and the Jaws community uh, and beer. So two things that go great together. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Remember, you can listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 and at RedTicketBlue. 
So with all that being said, enjoy your weekend. I'm out of here.